This is Chapter 70 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we celebrate the way local libraries bring people together. We'll dive into an international thriller about corruption at the world's most elite financial institutions. And finally, we'll get some dating advice from a former matchmaker turned novelist. It's estimated around 68% of Americans own library cards. If you're listening to me, odds are you're one of them, just a hunch. And if you are, you already know how vital libraries are to the communities they serve. That theme is central to Sue Halpern's book, Summer Hours at the Robbers Library, in which we meet three characters whose messy lives intersect at a small town public library. We chatted with her about the book and just how important libraries are. It's really about how a group of people have their lives transformed while spending the summer at a public library. And um, it's been my experience that libraries can transform lives in their quiet ways. And that's what happens to these three main characters and then all the kind of ancillary characters that are hanging around the library. There's also this idea that libraries are really the heart of communities, right? Yeah. So this library, the Roberts Library, is in a kind of failing industrial New England town where a lot of the businesses have gotten boarded up and and moved kind of to the outskirts or or just shuttered altogether. But the library just is the place that remains and it becomes a magnet or it stays a magnet really for the whole community. And that's in part because libraries are so welcoming. You know, everyone gets to go to the library. And I think that translates to small town, which is the setting of this book, and even big city here in New York City. I know my local library is really the hub for the entire community. Yeah. I mean, I lived in New York for a long time, and my local branch library was just a wonderful place to to go. But also, I mean, so many of those branch libraries in New York um, are so cool, like the Jefferson Market Library and... Um, you know, and I spent a lot of time at the main reading room of the New York Public Library. And 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 what was interesting was when I did that, I was working on my uh, graduate degree, and I would see the same people every single day. Not just the people who worked there, but the people who would come in who were kind of doing what I was doing. So there was this kind of strange community that that just kind of developed organically because we were all spending time in this one place, but we had nothing else in common. It's like a bar with its regulars. I guess people don't think libraries have their regulars as well. Yeah. And in the book, um, there is this cast of, of characters who are regulars and who kind of do look at the at the library as their hangout, um, in part because in this town, everything else is shut down, but in part because it's just such a kind of cozy place. There's also this idea in your book that people come into our lives for a reason. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it's what happens is that people come into our lives kind of randomly and then for whatever reasons, they become significant. Um, and so it feels like, wow, if they hadn't arrived, this thing would not have happened. You know, I wouldn't have fallen in love or I, you know, wouldn't have met my best friend, um, which is all true. So my sense is that, you know, we need to be more open to the things that kind of serendipitously show up in our lives and, and they can make a big, big difference. And that's what happens in the book because the, the three main characters have nothing in common, 
but they all have a reason to be in the library for that summer. And, and because of that, they all help each other really become who they are meant to be. We shouldn't be surprised that this is a book where the library is the central focus, that there's this love of books that, you know, is woven throughout. Every chapter starts with a a quote from a poem. When did you first fall in love with books? You know, I feel like I did really early on. It wasn't that we had a lot of books in our house. I don't think we did. Um, My parents weren't major readers, but... um, I just, I remember, you know, finally learning how to read. I was, you know, the younger child and it was very annoying to have my brother be able to read and I couldn't. So it was very competitive to be able to finally get to read. And then, and then I remember going to the library when I was a little kid and they had these contests where if you read the most books, you would get prizes and um, being rather competitive, I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to win this. And so I just started reading kind of obsessively, and I just fell in love with it. I remember those contests. <laughs> yeah, they were great. Uh, and- they kind of spoke to whatever instinct it is we have to, like, win. Um, but at the same time, you're kind of double winning because you're getting to read all these books, and you're getting to fall in love with books and, and learn the library and learn you know, all sorts of things about the world, and you get prizes. And I think it's interesting that you make a distinction in your book between uh, the label readers and future readers. Yeah, so I was thinking a lot about what happens when people go to the library who haven't yet mastered English or even know it at all. Um, Libraries are places that teach literacy classes, And there are also places that teach citizenship classes. And one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, when we talk about future readers, we're talking about little kids, we're talking about people who don't know the language. Um, But it it feels like it's, it's maybe the wrong name because they're all going to be readers. They're all beginning to be readers. And there's really no distinction between people who are just learning and people who can do it. And so I just thought we need to think about that a little bit when we're classifying people. Now, I've stumbled across an interesting note in your biography about starting a library in Johnsburg, New York. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I am in Johnsburg, New York right now. Um, Many years ago, um, our town was served by a bookmobile. It's a very rural town in the Adirondacks, so it's the largest township in New York State, 300,000 acres, and it's one of the smallest by population. There were, at the time, about 2,000 people, maybe fewer. And we had a bookmobile that came once a month, and then it went out of service, and they couldn't afford to put it back into service. And eventually, um, there was a guy on our town board who said, you know what, we've got to have a library here, and he came up with a very small amount of money out of the town budget. And three of us in the town were asked to use that money to turn a a room in the back of town hall into a library. And it was a kind of field of dream story. We were able to do it um, through like all these strange coincidences and slight miracles, maybe big miracles. And we opened um, and we were told to order 500 library cards, which we did. We were told by the library consortium that um, that was about an hour and a half away that kind of was in charge of our region, that it would take about a year to go through those 500 cards. We went through them in three weeks. 
Um, we ordered another 500. We went through those in six months. And by the end of the first year, we had given out 1,500 library cards. And the library just became the center of the town, a town not unlike the town I wrote about because it was falling on very, very dire economic times. And the library became this central gathering point for all sorts of people who maybe wouldn't even have come in contact with each other, much like the people in my book. And now, today, that library, still in the back of Town Hall, um, instead of having the 3,000 books on the shelves that we had borrowed from the library consortium when we opened, it has 40,000 items. It does 130 events a year, um, and it remains the hub of our community. And that number you quoted with the library cards, we're basically talking about everybody in town having one, right? Yes. And that was what was so interesting, because when we, when it was first proposed, um, there was a, a ballot initiative to raise some taxes to, to build a library, and it failed. And people are like, you know what, we, we don't have the money for this, and we don't need it, we've never had it, you know, why, why are you asking us for this? And... Uh, and then, you know, when the library existed, people who had been fairly negative about it ended up showing up in part, you know, they might bring their child in for story hour or someone might have told them that there was a movie that they could just, you know, take out for free. Like, that's stunning. And I think that uh, people who had been um, at least, if not negative, just kind of indifferent to the idea showed up and found out that there was so much richness in this room um, that they really wanted to participate. And, and it just, it grew. I mean, it just, it was amazing. I mean, we had um, within that, that year, people had just organically started a book discussion group and a movie discussion group. And eventually there was a play reading group. And, and, you know, these weren't people who, you know, came from, means, you know, these are just our local people who, who just suddenly found in this space, a place to do things that really excited them and brought people together who hadn't ever really communicated with each other before. And that started all sorts of other things happening in our town. So it was, you know, back to this question of what happens when you put people in a space where they don't necessarily know each other and they not, might not have anything in common that they think they have in common, but then, you know, whammo, they do. And did that experience in part inspire this book of yours? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was an amazing thing to witness and to be a part of starting that library and, and being there and, and watching all of the things that happened. And so I did have in the back of my mind this idea that libraries, you know, we think of them as these quiet places, but they really are transformative and they're transformative for individuals, you know, like when we're little and we're reading books and we can't believe that, you know, we're reading about a place that we've, you know, that we, one could only imagine. Um, so they transform us that way and and they can transform us in, you know, other, in, like in the book, kind of more emotional ways and they transform communities and and that's really where I got this idea that I wanted to have a story about people going through a transformation, but that the transformation, the kind of, you know, uh, growing culture 
would be the library because in my experience, that's, that can happen there. I feel that your story, your book, and this conversation needs to be trotted out anytime some local politician somewhere wants to cut the budget. And the first thing that's always on the chopping block is library funding. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. So um, the Trump administration for the last two cycles has proposed a federal budget in which they cut all library funding. So most libraries are funded locally, you know, by local taxes and and also by state uh, funds. But they also can get a small amount of federal funding, and that federal funding is really crucial to libraries like ours that's that are underserved, they're in underserved areas, or or libraries in urban areas that are also you know strapped for cash. So um, it's very very interesting that they they go for you know, cutting libraries, not really understanding, I think, the amount of public um, outcry that will happen. And that's what happened when those two budgets were proposed by the Trump administration. And the funny thing about it was not only did Congress say, you know what, we're not going with this, we're not going to cut the budget for, for, for libraries, they actually increased the budget for libraries because there were so many people from you know, it, it's nonpartisan. It's so many people from so many different walks of life and from so many different you know political viewpoints are like, no, you know, these are crucial to our communities. Don't take them away. One hundred percent. So, Sue, what are you working on next? Well, funny <laughs> <laughs> you should ask that. Um, right now, I'm not working on a book. I've been doing a lot of journalism, uh, which is something else I do uh, a fair amount of. And um, at this very, very moment, I am working on a piece um, about the future of election campaigns and what we can expect uh, to see in the next uh, election round and what we might see in 2020. And this is mostly in terms of what kind of technology is going to be used and whether or not we're going to see some sneaky stuff happening on Facebook and that kind of stuff. Um, so I've just been focused in this period on, on doing journalism and thinking about getting back into writing a book. But, you know, as you know, it's a big, it's a big commitment. It's a big step. So I'm just kind of taking a breath and, and then jump in, I'll jump in at some point in the future. Well, we also know around here that journalism is nothing to poo-poo at being a news radio station. So Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's actually, I have to say that I grew up in the tri-state area and CBS News literally was on in our house, I would say 20 some out hours a day because even when no one was home, that was the radio station that my parents kept on. But I, I could like... I probably went to sleep and woke up with that radio station in my head. Um, so it was, it was kind of a big deal. And, uh, and my, my mom moved out of the tri-state area, so she can't listen anymore because she doesn't, you know, she listens on her, her little wind up radio, but, but it was, it was a big deal in our house. That, well, it's a big deal in my house. I wake up and uh, fall asleep to it too. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think what was funny in ours was that they never turned it off. It's like if we went out, it was still on. When we came home, it was still on. And, you know, it was as if those people lived in our house. 
There's something comforting about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sue, thank you so much for joining us today. The book is Summer Hours at the Robbers Library. And good luck with everything that you're working on. Thank you. You too. Thanks for talking. The Banker's Wife is an international thriller featuring two intelligent and strong female protagonists. And author Christina Alger says that was totally intentional. She recently spoke with our Pat Farnack. Was there anything in particular that inspired The Banker's Wife? Well, yeah, I'm actually, I'm a big um, sort of news junkie and financial news in particular. I used to work in finance, so I became really fascinated by the Panama Papers case that came out um, about a year ago, or I guess two now. And so that was really the jumping off point. It was a data leak out of an offshore bank, and I found it just so fascinating. I became really um, interested in the world of offshore banking, and I thought it was really fertile ground for a thriller. Well, there's always high drama surrounding a plane crash, too, which figures <laughs> <laughs> which figures in, in your story. And in The Banker's Wife, the banker in question is lost in a plane crash, presumably, along with a beautiful woman who is not his wife. Wife, yes, Uh-oh. exactly. <laughs> I've, I'm a big thriller reader, and I love thrillers that have sort of a political element, but also a domestic kind of underlayer. So it was this was fun because it was sort of, you know, partly about um, this man's job and, you know, why, you know, what happened to him, but also his relationship and his marriage. So that was the fun part of writing the book for me. Also fun was uh, the book actually followed two women who were very compelling for different reasons, I thought. And and one of them, uh, you know that one of them is going to regret it when Marina's boss says, I want you to do something for me. (laughs) (laughs) And she's on vacation, right? Of course, in Paris. In Paris yeah. with her fiance, yes. um, I know I loved I love the character of Marina. It's you know it's she was a minor character in my first novel, and I always sort of wanted to bring her back. So here she is. Reading your story, I was also struck by the adage, "You never really know someone." Did that play a role in telling your story? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the fun things about this book is it's, it is told from these two women's perspectives and they don't meet, um, you know, the stories are kind of told on parallel tracks, but both of them are trying to figure out if the person they're with and the person they've committed themselves to is the person they believe him to be. And so, you know, I think that's that's sort of one of the things that unites them. And, and sometimes I think also uh, both women uh, thought that they knew what they wanted out of life mm-hmm. and uh, they find out uh, that it might not be all they it was cracked up to be in their yes, minds. Yes, absolutely. And that that's sort of what the title gets at a little bit is that both of them have to make sort of personal sacrifices for their husbands who are, you know, both very successful men and, and they both give up a lot professionally and personally. And so I think they both start questioning, you know, is this really, is it worth it? Is this what I want with my life? Could you give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch about what exactly happens, although I think we've alluded to it pretty well? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I mean, without, you know, any plot spoilers, the plane plane does disappear in the first in the prologue. So I feel like that's not giving too much away. But (laughs) there's a private banker who um, is an American expat. He works at a Swiss bank and his plane goes missing um, in the first few pages. And so his wife, Annabelle, goes on a journey to figure out what happened to him. And there's also simultaneously a journalist who's been investigating his bank um, who named Marina, who's also kind of trying to get at the heart of what happened to Matthew. 
I see that you were a financial analyst and corporate attorney, and now you're a writer. Is this zigging where you used to be zagging, or do you think this was what you were meant to be doing? You know, it's funny. I was an English major in college, and mm. I went. I sort of went down this finance path because my my parents both worked in finance, and I I never really um, thought being a writer was a real job. I'm still not totally sure it is. It's always <laughs> been a hobby for me. Um, I wrote my first book while I was working as a lawyer, and it just sort of took off from there. And I'm still doing it eight years later, and I'm really grateful for that. So it's been a it's been a fun career transition. But I definitely draw on my background while I'm writing. So best of both worlds. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Anything else you want to say to our listeners about The Banker's Wife? No, I mean, I hope everyone enjoys it. I, you know, I'm a big thriller reader. And I mm-hmm. think one of the things that was important to me when I was writing this book was um, most sort of traditional thrillers have male protagonists. And so I thought it was really fun and exciting to have two very intelligent, strong women sort of running the show in this book. So hopefully that speaks to female thriller readers as well. I can attest to that. <laughs> Thank you so much. The dating scene in New York City is full of stories, a lot of them crazy, and they're all waiting to be told. Enter Hannah Orenstein, whose new book, Playing With Matches, is a fun romp through the singles landscape as told through the eyes of matchmaker Sasha Goldberg. I quizzed Hannah about her inspiration. What drew you to write about the world of matchmaking? So I actually worked as a matchmaker for a dating service when I was 21 years old, and I was really drawn to the irony of what it's like to set up clients who are a decade or multiple decades older than yourself when your own love life is kind of a mess. So that became the central conflict of my book. Now, there's some outrageous situations that happen in this book. I thought the scene in Tiffany's was especially brutal. Are are they based <laughs> on you. real life stories? A lot of it does come from real life stories. Um, the matchmaking world is pretty true to life. Not necessarily that every scene happened or every detail is real. A lot of that is very fictional, but the, um, you know, the ways in which matchmaking works is portrayed pretty accurately. Um, When it came to my character's personal life, my character, Sasha, uh, some of that does come from reality, but because it is her personal life and I wanted it to be really dramatic and fun and exciting, I got to play around a lot with that. Just thinking about it now, I can't even imagine real people going through some of the situations that, that you talked about. <laughs> I will say the Tiffany's scene is real, and that was one of the most fun to write. Oh, my God. I, I can't wait for people to read that because they'll know exactly my reaction. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. You kind of sum up the whole problem with dating and matchmaking towards the end of the book and in, in the line that nobody really knows what they want. Is that true? I do think that. I mean, when I was working as a matchmaker, I would rely on my clients to tell me, you know, really, like, what are your values? Who are you looking for? What kind of relationships do you want to have? And I could do my best based on the information that they gave me. The problem is that, you know, we're all only human and we can only we can only search for what we know. And so, um it takes a lot of self-awareness to be able to date. And I think when people get frustrated with dating apps and they say, oh, well, the algorithms just don't work. Well, the algorithms are working with the information that you provide. And it can be really incredibly difficult to be honest with yourself about the kind of person that you're most compatible with. You just quoted me directly there. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thank you. So I imagine a lot of single New Yorkers 
will agree with your take on the dating scene in the city, but have you had any sort of reaction from people who are matchmakers and maybe your former colleagues? I have. Yeah, actually, I was talking to my former boss last night. Um, you know, she just said that our our industry is kind of crazy and wild and it's a lot of fun. And uh, she was excited to have people see the inner workings of it. So I have to ask, what's what's your number one best piece of dating advice for people out there? I would say keep an open mind. Um, you never really know what is going to be right for you until you find it. So I would say date a lot of people, keep an open mind, and just enjoy what comes your way. What can we expect next from you? So I'm in the very early stages of working on a second novel. So I'm excited about that. But I'm also um, exploring options to bring Playing With Matches to TV. Ooh, that sounds like it would be a lot of fun. Thank you. I think it would be. <laughs> so is there anything else uh, that you want readers to know about your book? I think it's an amazing book to bring to the beach. There's a lot of drama and romance. Um, one thing that I especially loved, including in the book, is a shout out to female friendship, a real celebration of what it's like to have an amazing friend in your life. So um, I'd say anybody who loves books about ambitious career women in New York, female friendship, love triangles, um, this book is for you. And so we've been speaking with Hannah Orenstein. The book is Playing With Matches. Thanks so much for joining us, Hannah. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. And that does it for us this week. Next time, we'll feature a debut novel that explores just what, if anything, we owe our families. To satisfy your book cravings before them, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books, and feel free to reach out and email us at books at intercom.com.